It's all right. It's all natural. I like it. I like the noisy kids play. So I'm sat here in Granary Square, just north of the Thames, in a bit of London that you used to have to come to to buy drugs or have a fight. And it's not like that anymore. It's changed. And I'm sat with Chrissy Levitt, amongst other things, runs Creative Conscience. And we're going to talk a bit about that in a minute. But Chrissy, tell me about yourself. Okay, so I am by trade a designer. I'm the youngest of six children. I'm a mother of two. And I would call myself a positive, creative activist. Brilliant. And you are all of those things. I didn't know about you were one of six. Yeah, the youngest. We're outside. There's going to be some wind noise. There's going to be some children. So there's going to be some external noise, but that's, that's to be expected. So I have the same three questions. Tell me what your childhood tasted of. What were the predominant <laughs> Really, really bad cooking from the 70s in the UK. So lots of meat and potatoes, never liked meat, overcooked vegetables, broccoli that if you lifted it up, it would fall onto your plate and splat. Pretty much that. Yeah. That's what it tasted like. That era, I mean, cauliflower was cooked till it went slightly pink. And we all ate so badly, not knowing what good was. It didn't feel bad at the time. It felt normal. But looking back, I, mine's the same. Disgusting. The smell of an overcooked broccoli. Oh, yeah. So lots, of, lots of that. Yeah. So that's your taste. That's my taste, What yeah. did your childhood smell of? It smelled of a kind of run-down old house full of stuff. My father was a hoarder. He kept every single daily newspaper that he got, two daily newspapers, every single daily newspaper for 30 years they lived in that house and he kept every single one of them. That's two papers a day. Yes. That's 14 papers a week. So that's, yes. that's 700 papers a year. Something like that. For 30 years. Yes, the whole house. It was it was huge, the house. It was run down. Everywhere there was papers and stuff. So it sort of smelt of old kind of stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. What, what <laughs> he, two papers did he read? Oh, I don't want to tell you. It's embarrassing. It was the Financial Times yeah. and the Times. Okay. So I don't think either of those are embarrassing, by the way. Okay. I think the FT is an utterly brilliant newspaper. Okay. But it just happens to be the Bible of people whose ethics we often don't yes. align with. Yeah. But in terms of reporting, it's really independent. It's a very well-written newspaper. Okay. Well, I've learned something there. The That's Times good. is Murdoch, um, but it's the less offensive side and the more independent side of Murdoch. I don't read it, but I don't think it's embarrassing either. Okay. If you'd said the Mail and the Express, I'd have been absolutely... I think he moved on to the, the Mail at some point. There were Daily Mails lying around and... We used to call it the Tory rag. It is. Yes. So there was some of that as well. I mean, he used to go through it and cut things out and keep things from it. So he would sort of get rid of some of them. But basically, the house was just full of old Tory newspapers. Was yeah. he a Tory? Yes, through and through. That's interesting. Which part of the country was this? This was in a place called Walpolston in Surrey. Surrey, right. Gotcha. Okay. Mm. So we've had your taste and we've had your smell. Now, tell me what the abiding sounds of your childhood were. <laughs> Hymns, Christian, biblical anthems of misguided doom. 
The thing is, Christianity is a very doom-driven yeah. religion. There's not much rejoicing, is there? Not in the Plymouth Brethren. <laughs> you were, your parents were in the Plymouth Brethren? Yes. How, that must have been quite weird it for you. It was super weird. And you were the youngest? Yes, of six, yeah. So your brothers and sisters above you, they hadn't rebelled in any way and created space for you to rebel? No, I think it was probably a bit easier for me being the youngest because, yeah. the, you know, it always is, isn't it? Yeah. Say, um, you know, oh, look, there's some kids with us. I just love this. There's a, there's a little bit of water and they're all paddling in the water. It's very sweet. That's pretty good. Sorry, I was definitely the black sheep and actually my sister ended up being a black sheep as well because she had two failed marriages and then decided she was a lesbian. And so she's now married to her wife. <laughs> and, just, just, uh, let's just analyse yeah. that. That's really interesting, <laughs> the way you talked about that up then. She was a black sheep. Yes. She wasn't, right? She had two failed marriages. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised she was gay. <laughs> so they were never going to work, were they? No, So it no. was actually about repressing herself. Yeah. And when she didn't have to repress herself. Yes. Joy came. Yes. That's, that's a yes. great story. Yes, it is a good story. I suppose I'm joking a lot about this. I, about I know you are. Naughty. I mean, I had two bastard children and all this sort of thing. You <laughs> so, didn't have two bastard children. I know, but that was their kind of narrative. So you need to leave was, those words behind because yeah, they're not no, yours. No, no. I'm joking. You're, I'm look, joking. Chrissy, yeah. I, for, the, for, the, for the tape, <laughs> tape, how old am I? Yeah. For the recording, what I see in you, I see this utter light, this joy that shines so brightly and others can see but I don't know whether you can see it in your own mirror. I don't know. I think that a lot of the altruism came from that kind of background of being in service to others. Yeah. And when you can sort of dispel the misguided and the hellfire and brimstone yeah. and all the fear, then it is light, like lots of wisdom <coughs> traditions. Yeah. But, so what you've done there, which I really like, is you've turned a compliment into an analysis of how Christianity can grow good. There's something in you, There's something in deep inside of you, which is what I've always seen in you, <laughs> that lights up a room. And yes, you're altruistic and yes, you're creative and all of those things. Maybe Christianity and the Plymouth Brethren were part of forming that. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I would say, yeah, definitely. Yeah, when you get rid of all the nonsense no, about you know, burning in hell and stuff, then it's got lots of really good stuff in it, like lots yeah. of like Buddhism or the Muslim faith or you know loads of stuff. There's nothing wrong with Christianity. I completely agree with you. The language is fascinating. There's a load of kids here floating their crocs down this little gullet, in which I'm ever so slightly concerned that they're going to lose them at the back. When you strip Christianity back to its core, it's a beautiful religion. Oh, yes. It's the way that we manipulate it in order to yes. get people to do the things that we think, that the church thinks are yes. valuable and important. How did that work with you in friendship groups? Were your friends in the same church or were your friends outside of that church? Well, they weren't exclusive brethren, which is a slightly different sect, if you like, but it was very much community. Mm. Um, we were encouraged to, you know, only be friends with other people that were Christians or brethren. It was quite 
controlling, I'd say. But, um, yeah, it was quite a shock going off to art school. <laughs> so that's where I want to go to next, right? Yeah. So, so you've got, I can feel that, I can sense the claustrophobia of that. Yeah, it wasn't great. <laughs> but I can also sense that, that at some point, that for every compression, there's a rebound. And you went to art school. Yeah. And Devil's where, work. No, it's not. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> but where, but where did you go? I went to do a foundation in Kingston, yeah. at Poly, Kingston yeah. Poly, and then from Kingston I went to Canterbury yeah. School of Art, and then from Canterbury School of Art I went to the Royal College of Art. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And tell me why art, and tell me why Canterbury? Well, art because I couldn't read and write, so it was the only thing I could do was to draw, right? And Canterbury, because it was not London, because where my parents were were too close to London. And it had a really, I don't know, it was a really lovely city. It was walled. It just felt like a lovely city to be a student. And so Canterbury, when I went to visit there, there were lots of people working outside and, you know, people sculpting out in the grounds. It was a beautiful grounds there. with It was just a really lovely place to be a student. It's a beautiful city and it's, a really, yeah. it's, it's close to some very stunning coastline. Yeah. It really is. But if you'd gone on a rainy day, would you have gone to Canterbury if there was nobody sculpting outside and nobody Yeah, I think outside? I probably still would have gone there. You'd have picked the vibe up. Yeah, it was quite hippie. But I like, I like that. So I'm a big lover of, Stuart Lee calls it psychogeography and, and the kind of the layers of history that sit underneath the place. This place in King's Cross has it. And how... The things that are buried below us can't help but seep up and infect who we are and where we are now. Camden has it for all of its other faults. And there are these places that just have something underneath them that we can't deny. And I, I agree with you about Canterbury. It's very, very special. You know, it's not just because it's religious. Did that help your parents make that decision? No, no. But it meant that I could pretend that I was going to church while I was there, but I wasn't. Get, getting caned. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So Canterbury for three years, yeah? Yeah. After Kingston for a year. Yeah. And then you went to the RCA. Yeah. To do your Masters. Yeah. And that's, you know, you're decompressing in phases here. So home to Kingston, Kingston to Canterbury, and then London. Yes. How did that feel? Really exciting. I remember going on the tube because, yeah, going on the tube to go to college. I lived in a really grotty flat on the Seven Sisters Road in, yeah, near the Nags, Nags Head in Finsbury Park. And I had to get all the way down to West London. I didn't want to be in West London because it was South West London. It was too near to the family. So I thought I'd go north. And I used to get the tube, and I loved going on the tube. It was really exciting. You'd sit on the tube, and there'd be all these people from different cultures, and a woman, you know, in her hijab, and all, all the cultures. And I thought it was just exciting. And the bit of London you lived in was quite Turkish, Cypriot. There was, it was quite an Indian, Pakistani population on the edge of there. That bit of London, what year was this? So it was 87 yeah. when I started there. Yeah. yeah. So that bit of, we were there in 89, 90, and it was wonderful. It felt like the world in one part of London, and, yes. and, I, and, I, and, I, and I loved it. What's your abiding flavour memory from that period? There was a really nice local fruit and veg shop with a proper geezer in it, and I used to just eat lots of fruit and veg. I've always eaten lots of fruit and veg, and so it would be that, really. Yeah. 
and yeah, he was proper local, local family run fruit and veg shop that was just, you know, down from the tube. And I used to have a chat with him and next door there was a little Italian deli and I'd get bits and pieces from there. I think it was before the mosque was built. Now it's very Islamic around on, on Finsbury Park. But then I think it might have been before the mosque was built. So it still felt like it had lots of different cultures. Mm. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was like where people used to go to, you know, find prostitutes and stuff in Finsbury Park at yeah. that stage, like here, like here. But King's, King's Cross King's was Cross. at the same time, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. So they cordoned off a lot of the roads to stop the sex workers and, yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah, rather I, than legalizing and normalizing, yeah, it, exactly. Would have probably been safer. Yeah. I, but, and a lot of my contemporaries were all living in Chelsea and out that side. Yeah. And I like the fact that you know I've always wanted to be different. Do you? Because I'm very similar. Right? I, I, to quote Elvis Costello, I don't want to go to Chelsea. Yeah. Like ever. And I like the grit, not the pearl. Always, yes, and and I'm I agree. I'm drawn to those areas that are sketchy enough, and a sketchy is a weird word. I'm not doing them down, but there's an edge to them. There's an edge to them that makes me feel actually there's a, just a hint of danger here, and I seek that out, and I always have. Yes, I hear you. And I see my abiding taste memory from that. Literally, Seven Sisters wrote is so two years later than that. Halloumi. I'd never had halloumi until I went to Finsbury Park. We were walking down from Finsbury Park. Nick and I did a really big circular walk and we had fried halloumi and the hummus. Yes. And I'd had hummus, but I'd never had halloumi. 1990 this was. And it blew my mind. <laughs> and then began a long love affair. Till very recently, I don't, I don't eat it anymore. Yeah, well, there were falafels, there's bagels as well. I'd never had bagels with cream cheese and... and salmon, you know, or yeah. not, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was coming to London would yeah blew my mind. I think I was a really I was incredibly naive because of my upbringing. It was yeah. so closeted and insular. And then of course Canterbury was you know it was quite closeted and insular. So coming to the city, yeah, it was. But I think you did amazing. the right thing when you come up oh, from yeah. the deep. When you're when you're a deep ocean diver and you come up really quickly, you get something called the bends. Too much nitrogen oxide builds up yeah. in the body. If I remember right, I can't remember. Yeah. So you have to come up in stages yeah. and you're coming out of yeah. that environment. Happened in beautiful stages. Yeah. I can see that. It was right. So yeah. when you finished your master's, yeah. which is a major achievement, back then no one did a master's. Yeah, when you, when you yeah. finished your master's, what did you want to do? Change the world. <laughs> How? How were you going to change the world? Well, there was a guy who came to lecture at the Royal College who had set up a charity in India where they were sort of screen printing health images. And I just thought this was amazing. I had an argument with three lads at Canterbury who were real socialists who said that design, graphics, illustration could never change the world. It could never save lives. And that what we were doing was meaningless and that you had to be a doctor and a nurse. And I had a huge fight with them. Mm. And then, of course, when I heard this guy at the RCA talking about that, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I freelanced and I would go to crazy war-torn countries and I would use graphics and design to talk about things like mind clearance or... Um, education around 
landmines. I did a, a number of jobs. Amazing. Yeah, bonkers. Right? No, uh, do you know what I think? It's what I've seen you all the time is that you have a very different way of looking at the world. And design is the single most powerful tool environmentally and socially. There's nothing that comes close. You can design better ways of living and, and being. We say that now blithely, but at that point, it was seen as not serious. Whereas you were ahead of the curve here. You could see how it would change behavior. Were you able to make a living that way? How did you live? Well, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to say that I would freelance for agencies and get paid well as a freelancer. Yeah. And I would do that. And then I would go and do contracts in various countries. And I was really into war-torn places. That was, I think, because my upbringing had been really dark and fearful, that I sought out fearful places. So I worked in Mozambique and Angola and in Laos and Cambodia and places like that because it felt really comfortable. Yeah. And so that's what I would do. I'd work selling shit to people they didn't need and then I would go and do these contracts in yeah. different parts of the world with this particular NGO called the Mines Advisory Group and then work for some other charities, NGOs in developing countries. Yeah. Amazing. I mean... Look, to take money from the rich and give it to the poor <laughs> is an age-old yeah, taxation system. <laughs> Robin exactly. Hood, right? That's your... Exactly. It's my neck of the woods. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think you should feel bad about that. I think there's learning there. So tell me what happened next. How did you move from there to where you are now? So then I had a couple of kids and I couldn't go charging around war-torn countries anymore. And I carried on freelancing and bringing the kids up. And then I got offered a permanent role and they wouldn't let me sort of stay freelance. And it was sort of lead in this agency. And I thought I've never been a lead of anything. And so I took it. And then I did that for three and a half years and while I was there I was miserable and depressed and that's when creative conscience was born out of my misery some of the best things are yeah definitely out of despair comes great learnings and hope so tell us a bit about creative conscience what does it aim to do how does it work and how can people get involved so it's a community built project it was started 10 years ago this month so it's our 10-year birthday party today and it was really set up to try and get our industry to focus on social and environmental impact and at that time people weren't talking about the climate or plastics or anything we were just on this sort of consumptive mission and that's kind of across all design disciplines from fashion to textiles to architecture you know it was just shareholder stuff and so our industry wasn't really ready to listen and so that's why we decided to work with the next generation with creative students who would then infiltrate the system and so how do we engage students we thought we'd set up a global award scheme and we built that on nothing it was down to the agency that I worked at they agreed to do it as a sort of side hustle so Thanks very much to them. And yeah, we built it and it just took off because that's what 
young people were starting to realize that we needed to turn our talent to something other than selling stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. Stuff. That was 10 years ago, that was 2012. Yeah. Um, good year here in London at that point, the Olympic Games. I was running an eco design part of a design agency. So I was working for Elmwood oh, yes, at that point. And we'd been doing, well. I've been doing eco design for at that point 12 years. So things were happening, but they weren't happening in the marketing part, the branding part of it. They were happening in the, um, that kid's just put his shoe through that tunnel. I'm intrigued as to whether oh, it's going to no. come out the other side. Let's just wait and watch, like watching poo sticks. Yes, oh, it's come out. That's brilliant. brilliant. Um, he's so pleased. Look at that. And it was a really interesting time in design. There was a collective quickening of awareness. Yes. And um, that's reached a peak frenzy now, which is good. It's a really good thing. The problem we have at the moment is it's not reflected in some of the briefs that the design agencies, the design agencies have got the answers. They're just not getting, they're not being asked the right questions. How do we get better briefs? How do we get the corporate clients to ask more of our design skill? So it's really interesting you should say that because I don't believe clients know what they want they don't, they don't know what they don't know so most of the briefs we would get weren't very good and there was a situation where we did product design and packaging and branding that was our agency we would come up with new product developments and stuff like that and we had this briefing from a big dairy manufacturer in Europe and they were changing their entire factory line to do this new product and we had the brief, didn't talk anything about sustainability, but materials were coming onto the market then that weren't plastics. Mm. And so we went in and I presented stuff which would really put them ahead of the game, like biotech, different things. And I got back to London and I was called up in front of RMD and I was told that I should never speak to a client about that stuff again. Bloody hell. That was in about probably 2010 or 11. And that hadn't come from the client. That had come from the agency. That had come from our own client services team who were too frightened. To rock a boat. Yeah. And so I believe that it's up to us as designers and creatives to say to the client, to challenge that they're paying us to come up with the solutions. If we're too afraid to suggest the right solutions, then we're not serving them and we're not serving ourselves and our teams and the planet. Mm. So stop taking the briefs that we get from clients and taking them as that's what we have to do. Challenge them, rewrite those briefs and be brave. But that creative bravery sits further back. There's a philosophical bravery and design is not just moving pencil or pixel, it's moving hearts and minds. And the bit that's missing often, I think, is the philosophy of design and growth. And that's down to the way it's bought by the client, not in the way it's delivered by the designer. I think there's a willingness. So look, we're now 10 years since you started. Yeah. Tell me how proud you are. And tell me what the future looks like, just to end up. I don't feel proud because I don't feel we've done enough. I mean, that's a human thing, isn't it? We never, we never feel like we've done enough. What I would really like is for another organisation, another brand, another entity to take creative conscience on and 
explode it and so that it can have bigger impact and greater reach. You know, we've had projects that have changed the lives of millions. It, you know, one project from a guy called Jonathan Ford called The Ice Poster changed the conversation in the 2019 Danish elections. You know, we can yeah. use so much creativity to change the course of, of history and the way we need to make the world a better place. And we need it so much. So that's what I would really like is to collaborate with another organization or give it away. Like say, look, we've built this over 10 years. We've fuddled along with a bunch of loony, maverick creatives. We're not business people. Who wants it? Who wants to take it on? Who wants to really own it and build it into something even more powerful and even more impactful? And that's a brilliant and altruistic way of looking at the value that you've produced. Mm. But my observation there is that may well work, but it would be missing you. And I don't think you should underestimate the charisma and charm that you've added to the project. You've let go of the curling stone and you've got the brush in front of the stone to smooth the ice. And I'd like to see you involved in it if it does carry on. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd be happy to be involved with it. But I think that, you know, lots of founders of things can end up, you know, in a situation where they're almost strangling their own baby. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> I don't want to strangle a baby. I want the baby to, you know, become a child and a teenager. And, and you know, so they say it takes a, a village to raise a child. I need the village now. I get that. I can see it. that. Yeah. So I'm happy to kind of remain involved and continue. It's just I don't want to strangle the baby. You need a rest as well. Quite a lot in. Yeah, yeah. And there are people who are much better um, trained to do the things that I and the team currently do. Young people, like people who should be doing this. Lots of people can be doing it. I think you should be very proud of what you've done. Yes, it's a work in progress. Yes, we're not there yet. But without you, I love watching kids play more. It's so funny because we tried to find the quiet spot. It was really quiet. And, and then they, oh, found they, us. they found us. Yeah, I don't mind. It's brilliant. My audio engineer will be doing his nut, but I think it's fine. Yeah, sorry, folks. Chrissy, yeah. what you do is incredible. Oh, and I, thank I, you so I, much for I being part of it. You. Oh, I've been a very little part of it. But I need to thank you on behalf of everyone for the work you've done over the oh, last 10 years. Well, it's not me, it's the community that's built it. None of us do anything alone, do we? So true. Yeah. But sometimes you need a leader. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>